Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we are humbled that you would communicate directly to us through your spirit, moving the prophets and apostles and their close associates to write to us your very word. Every word is true. The debate is not whether it's true, but the debate is inside of our own hearts, whether we will obey, overcome our hardness of heart, overcome our stiff necks, and cause us to have a desire within our hearts to obey, to follow our Savior, to walk in His ways by Your Spirit, that we might see You face to face. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to bring a message to you entitled, Glory Restored. Glory Restored. And it comes from Romans 3, 22b through 25a. I read the whole paragraph. We had an introductory sermon last week. Corey brought the first of uh, three sermons to follow the introduction. So this one and then one more on this great paragraph. While walking through Romans, we've been brought face to face with the ultimate problem of humanity. Paul, in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, gives the clear statement of purpose for his letter. He writes it this way, For I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the purpose of this whole book, church. Paul's purpose statement is to proclaim the gospel. He wants us to know the good news. He wants the Romans to know the good news. So it might strike us a little bit strange that from that kernel statement of the gospel, he stops that flow of thought and appears to make a huge shift. And we went through that together in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, when Paul lays out for us this bleak and dark picture of humanity. He goes to the very depths of sin. Why does he do this? Because to be honest with you, in a day like our day, it feels unnatural to go into the darkness. We're afraid of the darkness. We live in the darkness all of our natural lives before coming to the gospel but the reality is we live in fear all of our lives until saved by the gospel. We're bound by fear. Humans have a natural fear of the dark. Now I know we got a lot of tough guys in here and heroic women who don't want to admit that. But hearing a noise in your house that sounds threatening when it's daylight and hearing a noise that might sound threatening when it's dark is all the proof you need that your hair kind of stands up on the back of your neck at night when you're woke from your sleep and you immediately think something bad's happening. We have this natural fear 
that rises from the dark. So when Paul takes us in those first chapters and holds our head by the power of the Spirit and the power of his pen over the dark pit of our soul, it strikes fear in us. It strikes fear in us. There's another reason he does this, not just to strike fear in us, but to cause us to know we have a great need. If I don't tell you the building's on fire, you'll never leave the building. You'll just carry on your merry way until you're consumed by the fire. If, if we don't know that we're in any danger, then we won't look to be rescued from the danger, right? But in our modern logical sense, we often start spouting off good news to people who don't know the building's on fire, have no idea why they're afraid of the dark, and they don't see any danger. And so we just jump in there with this good announcement that they're all going, that's weird. I mean, I'm just at work. Why is this dude talking about some wrathful God that now isn't mad at me anymore and then just jumps right into this good news? Or even worse, no mention of a wrathful God, just that there's this eternal being up there in heaven who wants to give you a lot of good things. And they're like, I got a BMW in the parking lot. I live in a huge house. I have healthy kids. I'm going to leave here and go do my favorite hobby until it gets dark tonight and go home and be with my beautiful family. What in the world are you talking about good news? I don't need anything else. I've got it. Paul doesn't follow modern sense. He follows biblical sense by giving us a backdrop for the light of the gospel. And that backdrop must be the true darkness of our sin. So in 321, don't worry. I know you think like, uh-oh. If you've been with us, like Carlton's fisting to get off on that deep darkness again and I can't take anymore. I'm not. Uh, well, kind of, but not really. In 321, Paul turns a corner in our text. We saw that the last two weeks. He says, but now. And it's not just that he transitions from the darkness in his writing to a happier writing. He's talking about a different transition. That transition is the transition from hopelessness to hope in Christ. From the bad news to the good news. From the past times of the Old Testament where God was overlooking our sin and the sins of the people then until Christ came, he was covering over it until Christ came to he's now turned the corner in 321 to say, but now we live in the day that Christ came. And so he turns to the pinnacle of the gospel text in scripture. This is the peak of the mountain. I told you and so did uh, Corey that this paragraph we're looking at is the greatest paragraph considered by most people in the Bible. Why is it so great? Because it's the doorway into which we can see our salvation, our hope for salvation. The law is a work of God's grace, and it shows us our sin. It promises us a Messiah and displays the character of our holy God in fact, the entire Old Testament is designed to prepare us for Christ. 
the righteousness of God that has been revealed apart from the law is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're not made righteous by our actions and by our works and by our efforts. No, the good news is is that the hard work of Jesus Christ has made us righteous. And it's through faith in Him that we are declared righteous by the glorious, holy God of heaven. That's what, that's what Corey taught with us about. And I know it's hard to hear sometimes just how good this news is. Because we constantly want to go behind Christ and pick up the law and try to work our way to God. But what Corey told us, and I know some of you even stumbled over it, was that that's not good. We don't go back there to pick it up and do it ourselves because Jesus put on flesh embodied the entirety of the law, fulfilled every jot and tittle, it will not pass away because he lives forever. So we go to him through the Spirit. And we see our vital life flows through his Spirit to us and we have a new life in him that is lawful. (laughs) That is lawful. Today I want to pick up in 22b where Paul again emphasizes that emphasizes a point that he's made in the past in this letter, that there's no advantage for any group of person when it comes to our standing before God. There's no distinction because, because why? Why is there no distinction within the human race in terms of standing before the righteous judge? You notice he says it in verse 22b. For there is no distinction. He said it before. As I said, there's no distinction. It's both Jews and Greeks. He's made this point throughout. But why is that the fact? Well, to do that, we go back to the beginning. (laughs) As we often do here at Grace Fellowship, we're wanting you to see the biblical theology of this whole thing. And that fact is we go back to the beginning because it's at the beginning that we find a good and holy God creating a good and innocent creation. The pinnacle of his creation on the sixth day was to make... For himself a man, mankind, in his own image. After his own likeness, male and female. One way to think about this image of God is to realize that what God made in man was the ability for man to reflect his character, his power, and his glory. His traits, his personality to the whole world. Man was made by God to reflect God to the creation. In other words, God made man to have a relationship with him and through that relationship he would behold the glory of God face to face. And by beholding the glory of God face to face, we know in scripture anytime someone comes near to the glory of God, what happens to them? They began to radiate the glory of God. And had Adam stayed in perfect communion with God and Eve, they would have radiated, reflected like the sun shining against the surface of the moon and bouncing the light back to our eyes here on earth. They would have been the representation, the reflection of the very glory of God. This is the high state man was created in, according to Psalm 8, a little lower than the angel's with rulership over the whole world. That's how God created us. That's how God created us. 
Not only did he make Adam and Eve this way, but he made them so that they would have, so that they would live in marriage together and reproduce little human beings in the image of God. And those little human beings would fill the whole earth. And they would live forever. Now I want to stop there because some of you kids are in science classes where they tell you the world is overpopulated. Um, you could take the whole population of the world as it exists today, place it in the state of Texas, and everybody there would have the same amount of space as anyone living in Manhattan. The world's a big place. Think about that. I take that aside to just tell you God made a big world with the intention to fill it with his image with billions and billions and billions and billions of little image bearers. God had a big design. And the thing is, it's even bigger than they could have imagined in the garden. It's even greater than they could have even imagined back then. It's greater than we can imagine now. It won't be fulfilled until the new heavens and the new earth. But it will be fulfilled. Adam was to fill the earth with the image of God by reproducing himself with his loving wife Eve and they would fill the earth with image bearers. Adam was in the innocent state of glorious communion with God and with his wife. And if he obeyed God, he would live forever in a perfect creation. Isn't that a great story? Nod like this if you're still with me. Yeah. Some of you drifted off to that dream state of like, wouldn't that be bliss? <laughs> the answer to that is yes. Because we have a good God who does good things, who gives us good gifts. And he has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not long after God made Adam and Eve, they were visited by Satan in the form of a serpent. Adam failed to uphold the priestly duty he had been given by God, which was to tend and keep the garden that he and his wife dwelt in. He allowed the serpent to come in, and not only did he allow the serpent to come in, he allowed the serpent to speak to his wife, and he stood by and did nothing about it. Instead of driving out the serpent, he was deceived by the serpent. He began to believe the lie that God was not good, not really. He was withholding from Adam and Eve something that was so much better than what they had. You see, he began to tell them that God really doesn't want you to have his glory. God really doesn't want you to be all that great. God has something that he won't let you have. In Genesis 3, we're told the story of how our first parents believed this lie. They were deceived by the serpent and they fell into sin. He convinced them that their father, God, was keeping something good from them. They didn't want to be reflections at that point of God's glory. They wanted to be, they wanted to be outside of his loving rule, producing their own glory. They wanted to be just like God. They coveted and longed for their complete freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. In reality, they wanted to be their own God not obedient creatures made by God. And so they sinned, and in their sin, God met them, and he cursed them. 
But in the curse, he gave them a promise. And that promise was that from their reproduction, from their very uh, union as husband and wife, down the road there would come one who would crush the serpent. That would reverse the curse. He made that promise all the way back there. They immediately had a son. They named him Cain because they had gotten a son. Eve believed God. They believed that Cain would be the one. But it turns out Cain was not the one. Cain followed the serpent and killed his brother Abel who worshipped God in the right way. And then from Cain and from the peoples of the earth came grotesque sinful men like Lamech who said, if Cain killed his people, I killed 70 times his people. In other words, the world became exceedingly wicked. The world became exceedingly idolatrous. The world became a dark place. This is what Paul meant when he said in Romans 1, through 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the, notice this, glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. They began to worship themselves. Paul says it right there, doesn't he? What Adam and Eve did was take God's glory and say, not for me. And they began to search for their own glory. One decision to rebel against God and his loving rule over us as man brought complete devastation on all humanity. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction. Why? Because he answers the question in verse 23. All have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, when Adam did what he did, we fell with him. He represented us. He was our great father. He was our leader. Every human who's ever lived on the earth has descended from him, except one. Sin is described in the Old Testament mainly as lawbreaking. Words like transgression and trespass that indicate that Man went against God's word. He broke the rules. In this passage, that's not the focus. The focus in this passage is on the fact that sin destroyed our ability to have the opportunity to reflect the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word used here is an archery term for sin. It means to miss the mark. And when I was a kid and I was in RAs, and some of you are old enough to know what that is and grew up in Southern Baptist Church, and so you get it, we had archery lessons, and the whole point of the lesson was to show us how hard it is to hit the bullseye. And during that lesson, our faithful leader, following the textbook, said, everyone has fallen short of the mark. Just like us today, we haven't hit the bullseye. Now, thankfully, he didn't have any expert archers who had hit the bullseye. We had hit everything but the bullseye, including a tree nearby. And he taught us that. And it stuck to my mind. Like, 
we're all drawn back to Bowen, shooting at the target, and we're just not getting there. We're falling short. And I kept that definition for a long time until I realized that definition isn't exactly right. You see, it's not that this verse says that we tried to hit the target, the bullseye, and we missed. It's that we turned around the other way and shot the other way. Paul's not saying you came close, missed it by just this much, Mr. Jew. All you Gentiles, y'all are way off, you're hitting the tree over there. No, Paul says, Jews and Gentiles, you're all the same before God because you turned your back on God and you fired at a different target. You're not even aiming at the glory of God. You're aiming. Hear me. Everybody here in their natural state is aiming for their own glory. It's not just a few of us. It's all of us. The context tells us that we're not close and fall a little short. It's that we're not even in the ballpark. We're playing a different game. We have thrown away God's rules completely because His rules would have led us to love Him. And instead, we love ourselves. We were created to worship, is what I'm saying. The creator, and instead we worship the creatures. That's who we are. That's our desire. That's, that's what flows out of us. Notice in the beginning of the verse, he uses the word all. And you might wonder what all means, and that would be a good thing to wonder, because all doesn't always mean all. Did I lose you anywhere in there? All is one of those terms that we have to know what does all mean. And the way we know it is, through the context. Let me give you a quick example that many of you have heard. It won't take me just a second to make this point home. Ready? If I tell you, and some of you guys I've discipled, you're going to laugh when you hear it because you've heard it over and over. If I tell you I ate all the Cheetos, what do I mean? Well, one of you might say, well, Carlton, he ate all the Cheetos at Winn-Dixie. He went there, bought them all, and ate them all. Somebody might say he ate all the Cheetos in the plate. Some might say he ate all the Cheetos in the house. Some of you look at my physique and say he might have eaten all the Cheetos in the whole world. But the only way you'll know, the only way you'll know if I ate what Cheetos is if around that sentence I surround it with, I ate all the Cheetos that we currently have in the cabinet. All the Cheetos that were in the bag. All the Cheetos on the plate. You get it? So when you see all in your Bible, you need to know what that all means. Because you can get real confused and turn out to be a heretic. A lot of people have because they didn't read the alls correctly. This all tells us clearly who he's talking about. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. For all, he means universally. Every man in every class in every situation, has sinned, is a sinner. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to tell us a little later in Romans that because we have sinned, no matter what we do, it is counted to us as debt against us, not as a positive for us. In other words, because we are all born in the brotherhood of a rebel against rebel sinners, even our best and most righteous actions and thoughts are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Well, that's a packed sentence theologically, isn't it? All of us have sinned and we are justified by His grace. Here's an important word in our text, this justified word. Notice that it doesn't say, He made us just. It doesn't say, He gave us the ability to justify ourselves. He gave us the ability to earn back justice before Him. No, it just simply says that we passively have been called righteous or just or justified by someone outside of ourselves. We didn't do good enough to get accepted by God. No, God just declared us just. God said, you are just. I know right now it's faddish, and I'm glad it is, because he's one of my living heroes, to listen to John Piper's sermon, which was fantastic from Together for the Gospel. I've listened to it personally multiple times. But if you don't listen to Kevin DeYoung's message at the beginning of the conference, you don't have a, con- you don't have a context for what Piper said. And some of us I know haven't listened to DeYoung's message because we're walking around saying things that sound like we're going to earn our righteousness now. And that's what Piper meant was we had to act right. And we had to go back to the law and resurrect it and live by it. That's not what John Piper said at all. He spoke in a context. That context was you are justified. That's what Kevin told us. You are declared righteous before God, by God, for his glory. Isn't that what he said? Some of you don't know. Go listen to it. T4G with the four dot org. Look it up. 2022. Listen to all the sermons. They're awesome. But if you're going to listen to Piper, listen to DeYoung because he's making the point this text is making. And that is that you cannot live righteously. You must be made righteous. You must be declared righteous. You must be called righteous by God. That's what is required. That's what the Scripture teaches us. And now we ask the question, how can God do this? And Paul answered, and are justified by His grace. This is the heart of the gospel, folks. This is it. If you're not getting excited about this, if you're not like ready to jump up, we talk about charismatic moments in the church, this is one of them. God said, you're righteous before me. And here's the key. It's according to my grace. It is a free gift. I have freely justified you by my grace. God doesn't look at man's sinful nature and sinful action and say, well, y'all, God says y'all too. (laughs) Well, y'all. Y'all, y'all, y'all better get busy there at the edge of the garden. Y'all better get busy trying to clean yourself up. You know, I got standards. If you're going to live in this house with me, you got to follow the standards. Get busy. Do better. Try harder. No. No, he doesn't do that at all. He puts them outside the garden and says, you cannot come back on your own. You can never come back. On your own. You messed it all up. You destroyed it. And their heads are ducked. 
And then he says this. I'm about to get busy cleaning you up. Making you new. Restoring your lost glory through my grace as a gift. That's what he said to our first parents. That's what he's saying to you today. Don't leave these pews and be a better person because you will go to hell. Leave these pews saying there was a better person and his name is Jesus. And by him I am made righteous so that God has declared me just. And when your friend says, how are you made just? Say, by God's good pleasure. By a gift I don't deserve. So now when Satan comes and says, you know what? There's no distinction between you and the rest of the world. (laughs) You think you're saved? Listen, I know what you thought just now. I know what you did the other day. I know how you really treat your wife and children. I know how you cheated on your taxes. I know how you looked at pornography. I know how you committed adultery. I know you. You can look back at Satan and say, You're nothing but a liar because you're not telling the whole story. I'm much worse than you know. I not only did all of that, but let me get the list of rules out for you. Let me help you out. The Bible says you shall have no other God before me. And let me tell you, serpent, I'm trying to be my own God all the time. And I'm worse than that. I've even taken up images Oh, they don't look like little statues, but their career and their retirement and their family and their Instagram model status and their, you want me to keep going? Recreation and church attendance and Bible reading. I got lots of little idols that I love to serve. You had enough yet? Let me go a little further. The day I was old enough to know the thing called rebellion, I tried my best to rebel against my parents and get away with it every single day. From like two until now, I've tried to live that way. Not just with my parents, but with everybody I've ever had relationship with. I've rebelled against them. Do I need to keep bringing the charges against myself? Because I got a whole bunch of them. And Satan says... Exactly. That's what I'm trying. You're making my case. You're doggone right I'm making a case. Because I'm guilty. But now he has justified me and displayed his righteousness apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bore witness to him because his name is Jesus Christ and Satan, gone. He don't want to play that game. See, he wants to play your game. He wants to play your natural game of sitting in the closet and figuring out like an accountant. I did five good things and one bad thing. Maybe God will. He likes to play that game with you, Christian. He likes to play that game with you, lost person. Because he will win every time. Because your sin, one, is enough to send you to hell. And he will tell you that. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve the wrath of God. The only way out from under the pile is to say there's no distinction between me and any other human that's ever lived. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's purpose for us, which was to reflect His great glory and not have glory for ourselves. 
And he's justified us. Come to the throne of grace with me, Satan. Come stand in his presence and bring these charges. Because I have a surety that sits on the throne with my father. And he says, that one belongs to me. I did all that was necessary for him to enter our kingdom. I have purchased him with my own life and blood. I sustain them with my spirit to do what is good in your sight, Father. Keep them, for they belong to you, and I've given them to you, and no one is able to take them from your hand. Now, that's powerful prayer. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. That's what you ought to be doing every single day. Not in the morning, not at night, all day. All day, because if you don't, you'll begin to believe the lies. You'll begin to believe in the things that don't give you assurance. The things that you have done. Instead, believe in the things He has done. We're justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Not going to get through that sentence. Not going to happen. There's just too much there, but it's okay. I'll get it next week. Okay? But I do want to say something about the beginning of that sentence. So, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift up to this point. It sounds like God is not just. Because what it sounds like, if we stop there, put a period, and move on, is God doesn't take sin serious. Right? I mean, he said it was real bad, and he said there were consequences, and then he just said, you're not under consequences anymore, you're free. Because it's a free gift, Carlton. You just said it. It's free. It's according to his grace. But see, it's not a period. There's a preposition. Through. How does he give us his grace? And how does he make it a gift that we can't earn? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. At the core of that compound Greek term, which I'm not going to say because you don't know Greek, and I'm not good at saying it. There's like a little bracket inside that word, though, that'll make you just weep. At the core of the idea of redemption in the scriptures is something known as a ransom. You see, slaves can't be set free unless someone buys them. Prisoners don't get let loose and says, unless someone pays the price. Right? That little word inside the big word redemption is used in one other text and a parallel in Matthew, but in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus said that he had come not to serve, I mean, not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom 
for many. What you and I receive by grace as a free gift cost the Son of God his life. You look at my preaching, you look at Paul's text, and you say, oh, you people don't take sin serious. you got a God that's just like Santa Claus. And I say, oh, no. Oh, no. Paul says, oh, no. We have a God who takes it deadly serious. He killed his only begotten son. So that whoever has faith in him will live forever. Jesus said, I have lifted up, I'm lifted up, and if any man looks at me, he will be saved. What I'm telling you is, is that the cost of you and I being set free from the wrath of God, the eternal punishment due for our sins, the sin itself, which was our slave master, and the lies of the serpent, the, call, the serpent, the cost of that was extremely, eternally costly because it cost the Son of God his very life. You see, because there was a garden where a man in the image of God sinned, and thousands of years later, there was a man born, a baby in a crib, on a cold, dark night to a young mama, and he cried out like we do. Yet he wasn't born from Adam. He was born of God. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we, John said, beheld his glory. He was born in a fallen, sinful world, but without sin. And in his flesh, he caused us to be able to see the glory of God. What does it look like? Well, it looks like a kid that grows up with his parents. And at the age he could do what he wanted to do, he submitted to what they wanted him to do. It looks like a, a man who grew up in a small place out of the way, not known by anyone, and learned a trade. We got any blue-collar folks with us? He learned a trade. He worked with his hands. He got calluses and burned his skin probably in the sun and sweated and got hungry and tired and yet the whole time rejoiced in his father and the opportunity to do what was right. He loved the people around him. He cared and provided for needs. He took care of his parents. And at the ripe old age of 30, he walked along a riverbank and there was this wild cousin of his in a river called Jordan baptizing those who came for repentance. And when he looked up and saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the glory robbing, the glory robbing of man. Why? Because he is the glory. I must decrease. The moon must decrease because the sun has risen. And then he lived three more years teaching and discipling and training and healing and working miracles in their presence. He did everything according to the perfect will of his Father. He kept every single part of the law to its perfection. He confronted religious bigots. He comforted prostitutes and tax collectors. 
he lived a righteous life. And what did they say about him? He's a drunk and a glutton. See, his righteousness didn't look like their righteousness because their righteousness was a bunch of phony religious behavior. His righteousness emanated from his godness. He obeyed, and then he gave up his life. For his friends, he said, I lay down my life for my friends. I lay down my life like a kernel of seed that goes into the ground and bears much fruit. He had the last supper with them and told them that the scriptures were going to be fulfilled and that he would be betrayed into the hands of those who would kill him. And they refused to even believe it because who could kill a man like this? This truly is the Son of God. And he went into a garden and he prayed. And we have his prayer. Listen to these words. Father, the hour has come. Listen to this. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. What did I tell you the purpose of mankind was? To glorify God. To reflect the glory of God. And Jesus in his prayer, you don't know how it's confirmed. He says, glorify me so that I can glorify myself. What does he say? Glorify you. Glorify your son that the son might glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. To give eternal life. To all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? It was the lawful keeping of the law. Do you understand what I just said? The law was fulfilled. By one man, our new Adam, the second Adam as Paul calls him, the law keeper. The work you gave me to do, I did it. That's why I'm glorified and that's why I glorify you. So Christian, let me ask you a question. How's your law keeping going? You say, oh, I don't keep the law. And no, you don't. But you like to try to look like you do because it gives you status in religious circles like this. Makes you feel good about yourself. You're able to look at other sinners in the pew and say, I'm a pretty good person compared to them. But see, the problem with all that law keeping is you're not keeping God's law. You're keeping a law you've made in your own image so you can feel good about yourself. Oh, you've counted out the, the spices to the tenth and You've done all the things just like, watch out, another group of religious people that Jesus confronted, like the Pharisees. And he said, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he saying? Unless you stop trying to obey the law like them and start having faith in the law keeper, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way into the kingdom of heaven. It's the door. His name is Jesus Christ. He kept the law. Hear that. He kept the law perfectly. 
to glorify his Father and to be available as, which we will get to next week, the sacrifice of atonement to save those who didn't keep the law. You see, we don't follow after our father Adam. We Christians need to stop that. We need to trust the second father, uh, uh, second Adam, who is our spiritual father, Jesus Christ, and his father in heaven. We want to have you understand this from this text. Christian, you hit the mark because Christ has done it on your behalf. And if you believe in him, you will hit the mark. Lost person, we don't want to tell you to go try to hit the mark. We want to tell you about the one who did it. His name is Jesus Christ. I've just described him to you. The last thing he did was lay down his life and die as a ransom, a payment for you. He purchased you. And so, God has ransomed and redeemed many of us here today by the blood of Christ Jesus who was the atoning sacrifice to appease the wrath of God against us. And in Christ, we've been justified by the declaration of God over our lives, by his grace as a free gift. How is it possible? Because after many years of sin and failure by all men everywhere, Jesus was born, lived the perfect life, died, and was raised from the dead. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. Justified through Him. Faith in Him. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this time in Your Word and think about Your greatness and the greatness of this plan which You have had before all times, Lord, we, we just simply say, That we need you. We need you as believers. We need you as those who have not yet believed. Unless you save us, we cannot be saved. We ask God that as we respond to this message, to your holy word, we would do it obediently. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Pastor Corey's going to help.